Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe and Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to go slightly philosophical. And Fergal, I'm going to ask you a, a, a bit of a leading question. What is addiction medicine and how does it differ from primary care or general practice? Is there a difference? Is there a difference? Well, I think there's a significant overlap. And I think there are a lot of GPs who have got a significant expertise in the community management of substance use disorders and addictions. But there is a, there, you know, um, addiction medicine is a known recognized specialty within uh, the Australian medical framework. And addiction medicine specialists do operate both in the community, like GPs, but also uh, in hospitals, and they actually work very well in hospital settings. So I think there is a significant overlap in their roles, but they, they do have specific unique tasks. So, I mean, if we look at um, addiction medicine specialists and their hospital practice, a lot of it is to do with consultation liaison and also inpatient detoxes. And I think those two things separate separate out what addiction medicine does uniquely away from that combined pool of activity that is that, that both addiction medicine specialists and GPs do. So I think we need to identify or describe uh, you know, the management of inpatient detoxes and also what consultation liaison is firstly. Mm-hmm. So Philippe, what is consultation liaison? So consultation liaison from an addiction medicine perspective is when Patients are referred to the addiction medicine service usually by their home unit or their treating team for addiction medicine related problems. A lot of patients will present to the emergency department or be admitted to the ward for a number of medical or surgical conditions. And incidentally, sometimes they are uh, found to have substance use disorders or they develop complications related to withdrawing of substances or multiple substances and addiction medicine are uh, uh, referred to them or offered support via addiction medicine to manage some of these complications of withdrawal. Sometimes we're also proactively seeing patients on the ward who've been flagged by the team or ED as potentially having a substance use disorder as well and trying to engage with the patient. In summary, what consultation liaison is, is advocating for the patient, supporting patients with substance use disorders during their hospital admission, making sure they're receiving evidence-based care, whether that be opioid substitution therapy or the appropriate medical management of withdrawals. And that's, I guess, consultation liaison in a nutshell, trying to engage patients and keep them engaged in treatment. And it can be quite a, uh, a difficult and stressful field at times, uh, just because a lot of the times when patients are admitted to hospital, it's not for their substance use disorder or their substance-related issues. And it, trying to keep the patient engaged and in hospital is, I find, uh, the most challenging aspect of consultation liaison. Would you, would you agree with that, Fergal? Absolutely. I agree with everything that you've said. Um, 
Yeah, keeping, you know, so when you think about the prevalence of substance use disorder in the community, right? So for instance, methamphetamine use disorder, or sorry, cannabis, I think is the commonest substance that, that is used in the community. And then methamphetamine and heroin and, and prescription opioids are kind of next in line. When you think about how many people have a substance problem, then theoretically, any ward would have that same percentage of people affected. So, you know, I think roughly more than 10% of the uh, population have used cannabis in their life, you know. So, uh, and also think about the prevalence of smoking. So, you know, roughly about 16% of people smoke. So, th th you know, it's, it's no different from managing someone who's having uh, cravings from tobacco uh, compared to cravings from heroin or cravings from methamphetamine or cravings for cannabis. So... You know, we have to expect that substance use disorder disorder is represented in hospitals at least to the same level as it is represented in the community. And in fact, because of the significant comorbidity associated with the substance use disorder, actually the, the prevalence is higher. So what kind of medical problems would you, would you commonly see, uh, you know, in, in your role as, a, as, as providing consultation liaison? So I'd like to break it up into, into the surgical and the medical. Um, so mm. a lot of the time we see patients, um, say post-trauma, sometimes under the orthopedic unit for, for the variety of broken limbs, and sometimes in, under the general surgical team with, say, acute pancreatitis, um, abdominal mm. issues. Um, and the issues that we sometimes have to deal with there are, say, for example, patients with opioid use disorder, We've got patients where we have to maintain them on their um, opioid substitution therapy if they are on that in the community or if they are not on that and, say, using heroin or non-prescribed opioids, maybe initiating opioid substitution therapy. But then also providing advice on pain management for patients who have got a significant tolerance for opioids. And sometimes people in the hospital view opioid substitution therapy as pain management rather than what it is, which is trying to stabilize an opioid use disorder. So sometimes our role is very much to advocate for the patient and sometimes to encourage yeah. increased opioid prescribing to make sure the patient's needs are being met. So exactly, yeah. yeah. That is, I there guess, is a common myth. There is a common myth, isn't there, that, that if you're on opioid substitution therapy when you go into hospital, you don't need additional opioids for any nociceptive pain that you've got. And that, that's just not true. And I suppose... You're right. You know, one of our roles is to actually advocate for patients in that regard and help them and, and manage their pain uh, as they're in hospital. In, indeed. And sometimes also yeah. um, our role is also to, to assist with, say, de-prescribing. Sometimes we have patients who come in quite sedated, say, for example, if they've got pneumonia um, and they're on a variety of different, say, opioid medications, benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids. And sometimes our role is to try and titrate the medications down to get to a safe level or when patients have repeated hospital presentations for, for similar events of sedation or being, say, narcotized, our role is to try and get that safe balance of medications where the patient's needs yeah. again are being met, but our overall safety is, is also being maintained as well. So sometimes it's about prescribing mm. some medications, other times it's about de-prescribing. And the governing yeah. principle is that of safety, but also trying to make sure the patient is treated in a fair, equitable and humane manner. 
Yeah, I, you alluded to the difficulties of ke- keeping patients in hospital. I mean, could you comment about that a bit more? So the thing with hospitals for a lot of the patients that, that we see, especially patients with substance use disorder who may have been in hospital before, a lot of our patients are used to being treated poorly, to being stigmatised, to being judged, mm. to not being listened to and to having, say, their pain needs not met or their requests for analgesia are not listened to at all. So a lot of patients have very negative experiences of hospitals, of doctors, of other healthcare practitioners. And uh, in a setting like this, which is quite stressful, um, you you further try and put on a another layer of stress to a patient where, for example, in a previous episode of Cracking Addiction, we talked about people using drugs in hospitals. And uh, I'm kind of uh, talking about that in, in this scenario where people use drugs for a variety of reasons, but one of them is to, to self-soothe and as, as a coping mechanism, as a stress reduction mechanism. So our role in addiction medicine is to, to advocate for our patients and to keep people in hospital. Sometimes some patients leave hospital to use drugs for, uh, to help modulate their, their stress response. Um, and essentially, uh, sometimes from a harm reduction point of view, if we can keep people engaged in healthcare, make sure their underlying life-threatening health condition can be treated, I guess our role is to try and advocate for the patient and try and make sure that they use substances in as safe a manner as possible if we can keep that engagement. So I, I guess the consultation liaison program is there to make sure we try and best meet people's needs and also treat the patient where they're at in their in their journey with substance use disorder. So I think and that, that in a nutshell, would that involve additional would that involve additional uh, benzodiazepines and opioids, but you know more so than you would otherwise prescribe. Sometimes, depending on the clinical scenario. So as with anything, you have to have a reason for why you prescribe medications. And you also have to have a clear starting plan, but also weaning and cessation plan. Doing anything without an exit plan or an, a rationale is, is, um, is going to lead to, to disaster and, and tears. In particular, with benzodiazepines, for withdrawal, clearly indicated. Sometimes for uh, agitation and behavior management, it can certainly be utilized for a while. But usually while people are in their inpatient stay, we would be having a discussion with the patient about weaning and ceasing that, particularly if they were not on that prior to coming into hospital, because you don't want to kind of create more iatrogenic dependencies for the patient post-discharge than when they entered. And that's also in that harm minimization framework. Is that your approach as well, Fergal? Yeah, every, every case has to be judged on its merits. But I think the, the philosophy is, this is absolutely the foundation upon which we operate. And that philosophy is we, we are patient advocates and we are there to provide best practice and we're there to dispel the myths and we're there to intervene when required. Um, and, you know, when I think about the, some of the complex cases I've dealt with, you know, I've dealt with, you know, heroin use disorder presenting as a spinal abscess in a neurosurgical ward, you know, um, or someone with endocarditis threatening to abscond, or someone who's had an had a, a appendectomy, and, you know, and they're terrible pain. You know, well, you know, they shouldn't be in that much pain. Well, and so therefore, I've I've I've, I've had to intervene when other doctors have said, "Oh, that patient's just faking it." I said, "Well, they're not faking it. They've got a heroin use disorder." 
you know, and, you know, they're, they've got, they're opioid tolerant, therefore they need more opioids. Um, you know, so this, this is a kind of range of, of, of problems that we do, that, that we manage. So, you know, we've talked about what CL is. What's, what's it, what, how would you define inpatient management of withdrawal? What's that so, all about? So, I guess as, as per the, the heading and, and the title, the inpatient management of withdrawal is the opposite of a home-based <laughs> uh, management of withdrawal. So it's this the is inpatient when we, management of withdrawal. <laughs> so this is when patients get admitted to the withdrawal unit and we try yeah. and uh, medically manage their withdrawal symptoms. And the hallmark yeah. of this is probably using uh, combinations of medica- medications and doses of medications far in excess than what you would do for home-based withdrawal. And in particular, yeah. if we're talking about diazepam, I think we've talked about fixed dose um, withdrawal guidelines in, in GP uh, land, and usually that would probably be, say on day one, at a maximum, we're probably talking about 10 to 15 milligrams QID. For inpatient management of withdrawal, I've given doses of diazepam approaching, and I'm not saying we do this routinely, but approaching 200 milligrams. Um, yeah. Usually we would, 100 milligrams would not be um, out of the question. Uh, and That wouldn't be unusual. No, and we're also dealing with patients who are medically unstable and where a home-based withdrawal would be quite dangerous. So you're dealing with both substance use that is uh, quite high, but also patients whose health uh, situation is quite precarious and could could deteriorate quite quickly. So you're yeah. there to both manage the withdrawal, but also potentially try and manage other complications such as delirium yeah. or decompensated heart disease or a flare-up yeah. of uh, liver disease. So yeah. that's inpatient yeah. withdrawal management in a nutshell. So I think I would add to that that, that, you're, that not only is it just about um, increased amounts of, of, of withdrawal medication, it's also about close monitoring. The, you know, it's, that's the, it's the, the monitoring is the key thing that can happen in an inpatient unit that doesn't happen in the community. You cannot get intensive monitoring in the community. Absolutely. Would you agree with that? I, I, I would. And you can also respond uh, to deteriorations far quicker because of that monitoring as well. So yeah. I, I think the, the difference between the two, if you had to say it, is not only the medications um, and the doses, but it's also um, the risk profile of patients that we're that we're dealing yeah. with as well, and the fact that you have a, a, basically to to be eligible for a home based withdrawal, you have to clear quite a few hurdles to be deemed medically stable and medically suitable. We don't necessarily have to clear those barriers or those bars for for inpatient withdrawal management. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about. The two key functions that an addiction medicine specialist does in hospital. <clears throat> what do GPs and addiction medicine specialists do similarly in the community? What would you say to that? <clears throat> I think the things we do similarly, and I, I think we, we're in the position where we can speak as both, or you certainly can speak as both, and I, I will hopefully one day become an addiction medicine specialist as well. Uh, yeah. But uh, essentially what we do in the community is is the same thing. We engage with patients. We meet the patients where they're at. We try and start um, patients on therapy we feel that will improve their life and increase their longevity and decrease complications. We try and treat the patient as a complete individual we not only try and deal with their substance use disorder, but also try and manage um, 
cardiovascular disease, uh, liver dysfunction, any treat any bloodborne viruses, manage any STIs, provide education on harm minimization and harm reduction strategies, and try and provide the appropriate psychosocial interventions. So we do a lot of things that are very similar, but there are a few differences between general practitioners and addiction medicine specialists. And that's also a function of sometimes where we work and the resources we have available also. So, um, yes, uh, but we are, we do very much walk hand in hand in, in the community and, and I, I guess we should, and the relationship should be a synergistic one where we feed off each other. Yeah, I would characterize the role of an addiction medicine specialist in the community as being fourfold, really. So, you know, community, the management and oversight of community-based detoxes, because, you know, they, they still do exist. I know, I know we harp on about how dangerous our detoxes are, but there's a, no, a huge number of community de- de- detoxes that happen every day. So that's one. Secondly, um, relapse prevention. I think we do a lot of relapse prevention work, you know, both with medication and psychological interventions and therapies. Then we do harm minimization. And then we, we manage comorbidities. So, uh, you know, as you've already mentioned, you know, we, we look at heart disease, we look at lung disease, we look at, um, uh, liver disease. But I think this is, this is one of the differences between addiction medicine specialists and general practitioners. Because I don't believe that addiction medicine specialists manage quite the range of comorbidities that GPs do. And I, I think that GPs are experts in the management of the whole patient, the management of comorbidities, and also, you know, harm minimization and relapse prevention and community-based detoxes. I think, you know, GPs could do that entire range. And I don't believe that all addiction medicine specialists are going to be able to manage somebody's asthma, someone's hypertension, someone's ischemic heart disease, someone's stroke secondary prevention, you know, someone's, um, you know, um, you know, dysmenorrhea, you know, these, these kind of things. So, that's where I think the border is, 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 is between addiction medicine specialists working in the community and general practitioners. What, what would you say to that? I, I'd agree, uh, totally. Uh, it's a function of general practice to, to view the patient holistically and try and treat all the conditions. And, um, yeah. uh, there's no one organ system that a general practitioner looks after. It is the whole person and, and the whole body. And it yeah. is a very, very challenging specialty general practice to be a, yeah. a good general practitioner is, is exceptionally difficult. And I think, yeah. uh, you and I are fortunate, Fergal, in that we have a lot of great colleagues out there who are fantastic general practitioners and who also in amidst treating all the things that general practice involves also do a great job with with substance use disorders and, and addiction medicine but then again that's yeah. also just part of that holistic care of the patient that that uh, that is part of general practice yeah. yeah you're absolutely right you know we 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 work we are very lucky that there is a very high standard of general practice in australia um you know, I think it's a world-beating standard of practice, um, and certainly when I when I came from the United Kingdom to Australia, I was very impressed with the with the standard of general practice. Um, here's a here's a tricky question for you: <clears throat> If you had an issue with an addiction, and in you know, would you phone your G- a GP or would you get a referral to an addiction medicine specialist? And what does what decides that for you? I would go to my GP, actually, uh, and yeah. uh, mainly because I think your GP should be your first point of call in general 
And a lot mm. of GPs can manage uh, addiction medicine quite well. I don't think every single issue related to substance use disorder or addiction automatically needs an addiction medicine specialist referral, particularly if yeah. it can be managed in the community um, adequately by the same person that looks after your healthcare. Substance use disorder yeah. is part of healthcare and by default, general practitioners should be managing the vast majority. If there's a specific need to see an addiction medicine specialist, um, and that would potentially be if the patient needs a, a inpatient withdrawal admission or a hospital admission, um, or there's some complexity that is beyond the expertise of the general practitioner, then that's fair enough. But as, as a starting point, I think seeing your general practitioner and seeing if they can manage it, which they should be able to, I think that's a good place to start. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, I think the general practice is more than capable of managing the, the, the vast majority of addiction issues. It's, it's more, it's only the more complex stuff that really needs to go to the hospital. Um, and especially, I think it's important for people to realize that, that within primary care, we have the ability to treat opioid use disorder, for instance, incredibly well. I mean, you know, the, 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 that domain of opioid use disorder has really been transformed by the advent of certain kinds of drugs. Would you care to talk about that, Philippe? Sure. So with opioid use disorder, the preparations we use are essentially buprenorphine and methadone. And with buprenorphine, we have suboxone, but we also have the long-acting injectable preparations, Buvidal and Sublicate. And we have talked about all of these on earlier episodes of, of Cracking Addiction, if, if anyone would, would care to, to look at those episodes uh, in particular. But all of these are available through primary care. You certainly do not need to see an addiction medicine specialist to access um, opioid substitution therapy. Uh, and also these can be dispensed through community pharmacies. So you definitely don't need to go through a hospital pharmacy for, for any of these um drugs at all. So this is well within the, um, the wheelhouse um, of, of primary care, as, as it should be. And so too in the case of alcohol, you know, uh, there are, there, there's an established protocol for non-residential withdrawal from alcohol, uh, which actually Meducate has published, but you know, it, it's entirely reasonable to have a home-based alcohol detox uh, if you know managed by your GP and, and maybe a, a community-based AOD counselor and also the responsible adult at home. I mean, have you got uh, any stories to tell about effective, safe management of NRWA? Yes, um, for the vast majority of patients I saw initially when I was working in in regional Victoria, we didn't have um, access to as as ready access to uh, residential uh, facilities um, as we do here in Melbourne. And also for a lot of the patients I was seeing, uh, their overall health status was relatively good. So I was privileged enough to work at a health service where we had um, drug and alcohol counsellors embedded within the service. Uh, and there was a significant amount of monitoring where I could um, manage a lot of the withdrawal symptoms on an outpatient basis with stage dispensing of medication through a variety of different services and also ability to get the patient in as well as including transport to bring the patient to and from the clinic. So I've had quite a bit of experience in, in the community of doing um, a variety of uh, withdrawal regimens, including um, alcohol, but also uh, cannabis. And um, it's 
with appropriate patient selection and appropriate supports, it usually goes relatively well and it's relatively, um, it, it's relative, it's quite rewarding and it, it certainly spares the patient, uh, uh, hospital admission or, uh, inpatient, uh, withdrawal management admission. So it's a good, good use of resources as well. So really a good GP in the community probably does a better job of managing the patient holistically than an addiction medicine specialist. Indeed. And I think that's probably a, a, a good place to, to end this episode of, of Cracking Addiction, where we've talked a bit about the differences between primary care and general practice and addiction medicine, um, what an addiction medicine uh, specialist does in, in hospital and in inpatient withdrawal uh, units, and also um, how uh, both addiction medicine specialists and GPs work in the community and how this can actually be a synergistic relationship. Uh, and how GPs should be the first port of call for patients with substance use disorders. So thank you for your attention uh, on this episode of Cracking Addiction and bye for now.